Amen. Amen. Pray with me, if you will. Father, as we uh, go before, uh, as we come before you this morning, as we're about to open up your word, Father, I ask that you will completely strip me um, out of this pulpit. Lord, that uh, nothing that I say here will be my words, but that you might speak through me. Father, we know that you are a mighty God. And Lord, that you have prepared a message for all of us. And Father, I know that I have been wrestling with this passage for weeks now. But Father, I ask that this morning that you will just completely clear me out of the way. So there might not be any wrestling at all, but just simply a presentation of, of the word you would have me speak. Lord, I just ask that you will bless us as a congregation. Bless us as a people that seek to do your will. And Father, I ask that you will just allow your message to shine forth this morning. We love you and we thank you. And we ask this now in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, so if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open up to the book of Daniel. We're going to be in chapter 4. Um, and this is going to be an exciting chapter. Um, I'm looking forward to it. Um, sort of. You know, I'm also a little nervous. Uh, a lot of trepidation here. Um, the entire book of Daniel is uh, is just a powerful book. Um, and the more I read, the more I study, the more I um, try my hardest uh, to... Um, uh, to be diligent in preparation, I just feel like every time I step in here, I'm just unprepared. Um, and it, it bothers me because I don't like to be unprepared, but there's just so much here um, in this in this chapter, in this entire book. And, and I know some of you are like, well, just break it up and go slower. And I wish I could, but we just don't have the time um, in the calendar to be able to to condense, to, to, to break it out into pieces. And, and also, I, I don't want to mess up the flow. There's a, there's a flow in the scripture that God is trying to share with us um, some things. And, and, and I want that flow to just sort of allow it to come forth. And so um, in, in that light, you know, there's, you know <laughs> there's just so much here. Um, we're really going to focus on, originally I was going to focus on the dream. In fact, I preached this, uh, this chapter two or three times in my career, and, um, and I like to focus on the dream. The dream is amazing, and the dream is phenomenal. And I, and I oftentimes in the past have looked at Nebuchadnezzar is just this instrument of this great dream that God uses uh, to give us a bit of future telling as well as um, just a wonderful um, testimony of his power and his greatness. Um, and I've looked at this quite deeply in the past. Um, unfortunately, um, the Lord just has told me the last week and a half that, that focusing on the dream is not what he wants me to do. He really wants me to focus on the message and the meaning behind what was going on between Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel, and between Nebuchadnezzar and God. So I, I originally titled this sermon, The Tree of Destiny, because that's what I wanted to talk about. Uh, the Lord just smacked me around, so I'm actually um, going to be have, a, have an alternate title uh, for this sermon. The alternate title I think God wants me to have is A Tale of Two Kings. Because what you have here is you have the king um, of, of Babylon, the greatest king at this point that had ever lived in the history of mankind. Since they stepped off the Noah's Ark, as they began to populate and, and repopulate the earth, as, as, as they began to build and to shape and to change and to, to dwell in the earth that we have now, post-flood, this is the greatest king that has lived up to this point. 
He is the first Gentile king that's ever ruled over the known world um, at this time. And he's also the only Gentile that, as far as we know, when he, when he began to have this encounter with God that eventually allowed him to write this chapter, one of the, one of the longest chapters in the book of Daniel, he may or may not have been totally saved, but we have him, the king of the known world at the time, going toe-to-toe with the king of the universe. The king of all creation. It's like round three. Yeah, round three. See, the first round began all the way back in the beginning of his reign when he was about 25 years old. And he was just starting out his journey in the kinghood or kingship or whatever you will. And he is preparing for that, uh, that, 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 that task that he has. And that was round one when he had that first dream. And, now, and then round two happened when he was uh, faced with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the, the Babylonian names of the, of the three Jewish boys men, young men I should say, whose names we know as Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, that's their Jewish names. And he had that encounter, he set up that he set up that statue that needed to be um, worshipped, and in the end he came face to face with the living God, who was in the fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, with Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And he was in that fire, and he was and, and, and God was with them, and he saw, Nebuchadnezzar saw that. Now, we don't know how many of the advisors saw it, but he was so much and so that he turned to him and he said, Hey, look. You know, so we're now at round three. Ding, ding, ding. It's begun. Nebuchadnezzar is about to face the worst, really the worst year of his life. Um, that's going to lead into the, <laughs> the craziest seven years that he ever walked the earth. And I don't know how much he will remember of it, um, but I can tell you this, in the end, he comes face to face with the living God, and there is only one choice for him. He has to acknowledge who God is. And so... I just want to just do a little bit of a recap. We talked last week about what a forge is, and we talked talk about this fiery furnace, and how the word that was used there in the, in the Aramaic is, is a word that's also used for forges. And, and we oftentimes looked at the fiery furnace as, a, as something that's, that's uh, negative, uh, because uh, a form of torture, it's a form of, um, it's used in this sense, in this, cha- in this, in this book, as, as being a, a place of execution. Uh, but in reality, now we often see in, in in the world that forges are not necessarily a place um, where where punishment happens, but forges oftentimes are places where things of great beauty and great usefulness come out of. And it's interesting, if you do a study in the scripture, you'll find that most leaders become more effective after they have some fall or tragedy or struggle in some mighty way, and that God is able to lift them up and put them in a place of true usefulness because they have to go through that time of foraging. Some leaders need to spend 40 years in the backside of the desert before they go and become useful to God. And so we see the king here is about to come face to face with the living God. And this is sort of how it begins. Um, and so we have... We have it here, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of all the people, starting off in verse 1, chapter 4. Um, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, uh, the king to all the peoples, nations, men of every language that live on all, in all the earth, may your peace abound. Listen to that phrase, may your peace abound. You know, it's amazing what he's saying here. He's saying that the peace that, that, that you have, may it grow and become magnified, right? That's the passage here, may you become magnified. It's interesting. 
interesting that he uses that phrase because here he is, the king of the world. He's writing to the people that are under him. This is an affidavit, by the way. This is a, a legal testimony he's putting out to, to the nation about something that happened to him, right? So he's giving this testimony out to the people, but he starts it off by saying that peace that you have may it be even more fruitful. And oh, by the way, in case you hadn't realized it, the peace that you're living under is the peace that I brought you. See, Nebuchadnezzar is sitting at a place right now near the end of his ministry. In fact, he's about eight, nine years away from his death. He doesn't know it, um, but he's coming to the end of his ministry. It's been about 30 years since the uh, previous chapter concluded, and the uh, the whole statue debacle and the, the fiery furnace um, uh, scenario, and now he's moving into the final days, if you will, of his reign. And in that in that time, he has is, he is put down all the rebellions. He is firmly established as the, as the leader the ruler of this free free world that he has there, or as free as, 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 as he allows it to be. And he's now here. Daniel's about 50 years old, give or take a little bit. You know, uh, Nebuchadnezzar would be about 60-ish, 65, 67, somewhere around there. And Nebuchadnezzar is coming to the end of his life. And he's looking at this peace that's there, and he's asking it to be multiplied to his people, but he, he's, he's almost acknowledging himself. And this is where I think it really comes, uh, becomes the danger zone. Right, because he's he's starting to lay that groundwork that you're going to see that comes through this. That ultimately, what what's happening here is that is that Nebuchadnezzar is filled with pride, and pride is something that is pretty powerful. I was reading my favorite theologian, C.S. Lewis. Uh, this week he talks about pride. He says there is one vice which no man in the world is free of, which everyone in the world loathes when they see it in others, and of which hardly any people except some Christians ever imagine that they are guilty of themselves. There is no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves, and the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others, and that biggest vice is pride. Pride is the biggest danger in the church from the pulpit to the pews. Pride is the one area that we will always battle, always battle. Pride is one of the things that, that the, the, the New Testament writers talk about. There are three areas that sin abounds. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. You know, you look through all through Scripture and you see that, that God hates the proud and the arrogant. It's something that He's always trying to tear down because ultimately what pride is is idolatry. It's putting ourselves and our accomplishments up on a pedestal and, and, and worshiping them rather than the living God. And that's pride is just a powerful negative. And that's something that every church, this one included, is, is, is in danger of. Whether you're sitting at home, whether you're here in the, in the building, you need to hear my words because I want you to know that God has been speaking to me for an entire month about this. This is something that he has been, been, been beating me up with. And when I say I've been wrestling with God for the last week and a half, this is what I've been wrestling with, is this pride that I know is in me. And I know if it's in me, I know it's in other people too. Let me tell you something. Pride is the ministry killer. Every time that we build ourselves up or our accomplishments up, we diminish who Jesus is. We need to be more like John the Baptist. In order for him to increase, Jesus to increase, we must, what? Yes! We must decrease. 
We must diminish. It's not about us. A hundred years from now, there shouldn't be anybody talking about who we are, but everybody ought to be talking about Jesus, and that's how we should magnify Him and build Him up. Now, that... That's just the first verse. Nebuchadnezzar goes on. He says, and it seems good to me. It seems good to me. Here he is, he says, seems good to me to declare the signs and wonders which the Most High God has done for me. And then we get into something that theologians like to call a doxology. In fact, this chapter, written by Nebuchadnezzar's hand, has two doxologies in it, one in the beginning and one at the end. And you're going to see those doxologies. And what a doxology is, is just simply a, a statement of faith, if you will. So in many ways, Nebuchadnezzar is writing his personal state of, statement of faith. He's writing his testimony. He's declaring to the whole world that he, the king of this land, has been humbled... And that there is no other king but God, king of the universe, the Most High. Look what he says there, the Most High God. And what the Most High God has done for me. Look what, his God, look what it says here in verse 3. It says, How great are his signs and how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and his dominion is from generation to generation. There's the doxology. And then Nebuchadnezzar starts off with his, with his statement. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, it's in first person, was at ease in my house and flourishing in my palace. The words there give an idea that he is, he is enjoying the peacefulness of his reign, the peacefulness that has occurred by the, by the strength of his arm, by the, by the intelligence and the wit of his generalship, by the maneuvering and machinations of his bureaucracies and his, and his, and his people as he's made this kingdom phenomenal, right? And, and now he's, he's enjoying this. He's, been, he's, he's now 30 years after this. All the rebellion's been put down. And he says, I'm enjoying enjoying my peace. I'm flourishing in my palace. And I saw a dream that scared the ever-loving stuffing out of me. That's my translation, by the way. I saw a dream and it made me fearful, he says. And these fantasies as I lay in my bed and the visions in my mind kept, kept on alarming me. So I gave orders to bring all the, in my friends, all the wise men of Babylon that they may make known the interpretation of the dream. And then they came. Magicians, the conjurers, Chaldeans, diviners. And I related the dream to them. But they could not make known its interpretation to me. It's funny how he calls them all in, but he doesn't call Daniel. He's like, oh, I'm going to get y'all in here, but wait a minute. I'm going to, yeah, maybe not Daniel yet, right? Maybe I'm not going to save my big guns because I personally think that he's watching this dream unfold. And they sort of give the idea here that this is just like the other dream. wasn't really a one-night affair. This was an ongoing thing, and he was, he, was, he was being cut to the quick. He was having issues. Issues. And I think... In his heart, he kind of knew what was, what was being said here. I think in his heart, he knew. He knew that there were some things that needed to be done. I don't know why he didn't call Daniel immediately. It seems that, that in this situation, especially with the tenderness in which they communicate later on in this chapter, you would think that Daniel um, was somebody that he would have called first. But I think he was afraid. I think he was afraid of what Daniel had to say. In fact, there's probably like six possible reasons why he didn't call Daniel. 
it, one of them, and this is the secular, secular historians like to point this out, that it's possible that this Nebuchadnezzar wasn't the same Nebuchadnezzar that, um, that Daniel dealt with and didn't know him real well, which I think is, is, is false. And, and historical evidence has proven time and time again that this Nebuchadnezzar was the same as it was before. Another one of the things might be that um, they may have held back uh, waiting uh, so that Daniel could have center stage. Maybe he was trying to build up his old friend, his trusted advisor, to give him an opportunity yet again to show just how good he is, even though Daniel always gave credit to, to God. Um, he may have, uh, Daniel may have had other responsibilities that kept him away from the city of Babylon. We mentioned that last week. Where was Daniel in chapter 4, chapter 3? Um, the king may have been resisting the implication that Daniel has superior wisdom, maybe even than himself. Maybe that little bit of pride there was trying to say, if I can't figure this out and, and I can't get my other wise men to, I don't know if I want to give that over to Daniel. The king may have forgotten that Daniel interpreted uh, the dream before, but I think that's ridiculous. Um, obviously, that's just an option, it's, but I don't think it's true. The king may have had a general idea as to um, what this dream really was, and I think that's what it really comes down to. Is I think Nebuchadnezzar knew that there was some, something that was going to happen, and it wasn't going to be pretty. And it wasn't going to be pretty for him. You know, so... He relates this dream to his wise men. Notice that he doesn't, uh, he, he doesn't hold back this time. It's not like the previous dream where he was trying to use it as a test of loyalty to see whether or not these guys were as good as they said they were. At this point, he just throws it all out there. He says, guys, you got to tell me about this. They said we can't do it. And then finally, Daniel came in before me, whose name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. Notice this is one of the only times that the name um, of Daniel is recorded, not Daniel, but is in his Babylonian name. And I think part of the reason why is that this was a public statement that was being handed out to the nation, a nation that had been seeing this individual Daniel as the spokesman and the, the secretary of state, if you will, um, the chief of staff for Nebuchadnezzar, and um, he would have been known as by his Babylonian name, which is Belteshazzar, which isn't uh, Daniel, and so he just wanted to be able to connect those two names together so that anyone that was reading this document that didn't know who Daniel was, but maybe knew who Belteshazzar was, um, would understand that we're talking about one and the same person. He says, his name is Belteshazzar according to the name of my God. See, you notice that he's still there. He's, he's giving us an eyewitness a testimony of his transformation from uh, a, a pagan belief system to a belief in the one true God. And finally, but finally Daniel came before me and, and he says that even though he was named after this God of mine, Marduk, um, Bel, um, but in him is a spirit of the holy gods. You see that in the New American Standard. I know the, New, the, the King James says something a little different, but that's a, that's a true word-for-word -word translation of the, of the Aramaic. It's a holy gods. By the way, the word there for God is Elohim, which is a plural word. Um, and in this case, uh, he was referring to it because he was pagan, and um, he was referring to a pagan uh, reference to this, but we know that can also be translated into holy god. Um, and I related the dream to him, and I told what it was. And this is what I said to him. I said, Oh, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians. Look at the name there he's got. That name there is Rob Kanan, or Katum. Sorry, Rob Katum. It's the chief of the magicians. That's a title that he's had now, but he's going to have a title later on that's going to be even greater than this one. This is a pretty powerful title, but it's not the title that's going to be, that's going to be problematic for the nation um, after Nebuchadnezzar steps off the throne, which will come in, in a later chapter. And since I know that the spirit of the Holy 
gods is in you and that no mystery baffles you. Tell me the visions of my dream which I have, which I have seen along with its interpretation. Now these were the visions in my mind as I lay in my bed and I was looking and behold there was a tree in the midst of the earth. And so he's fixated on this tree and he keeps focusing on this tree. I'm not going to read the whole dream to you because um, I don't want to focus on the dream. I, he's fixated on this tree but I don't want us to be fixated on the tree. But I do want to point out that there are like seven things that, uh, that he pulled out of this tree that he thought was important, right? And so we know that in the ancient Near East, in that time period, trees were often used to describe uh, kings. We see that throughout the, the prophets as they talked. Oftentimes they would, they would liken this particular king to a cedar of Lebanon or this other tree. We know that there are some trees that are mentioned in the New Testament. Jesus deals with them. And in this case... We see the king um, knew without a doubt that this tree represented him, right? And we know that because of the central position of the tree, the tree is located right in the center. We know that it's enormous in height. It just fills the whole earth. It's a huge tree. And he evidently, without a doubt, he knew this probably had to do with him. It's continuing to grow. It's visible to all the people around. It's beautiful to behold. It's abundant with fruit and life and provided lodging for all the birds birdies and the beasts which are obviously referencing people and so um, he's looking at this and he's like man it's just a description of my my kingdom and how great I am I go back to that first verse where he says my may basically my peace um, abound in you the peace I've given you and so he's all powerful he's all focused on that he's like this is the dream right this is the dream and then Daniel hears all those things and, you know, Nebuchadnezzar concludes in verse 18. He says, that's the dream I had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it is. Tell me what it means. And this is, oh, man, this is probably one of the most, most tender and beautiful moments that any two individuals can have. There is a tenderness here that just, it's amazing. Daniel, I tell you, has, has definitely has a place in Nebuchadnezzar's heart. He cares deeply for this man. Um, and he couldn't. He couldn't have not. I mean, this is a, this is a fellow that that rewards those that are diligent and do well for him. But this is an individual who probably hasn't kept a whole lot of staff permanently around him for his entire reign. But yet Daniel has made it through the entire reign of Nebuchadnezzar from the beginning all the way till now, thirty years into this reign, forty years into this reign now, um, uh, and he is and he is now sitting there still in that same position, still connected to Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel whose name is Belteshazzar was appalled. The word there in the Hebrew or the Aramaic is distressed, greatly distressed for a while, the New American Standard, but, it said, but that really means for an hour. That word there means for an hour. He was appalled. He was, he was distressed. He was frustrated for an hour. And his thoughts alarmed him. And the king responded and said, Belteshazzar, don't let that dream or its interpretations alarm me. Alarm you. Basically saying, look, I know it's going to be a tough one. I know it's going to be a tough one. And I know that, that oftentimes I don't want to hear bad news. But Daniel, I don't want you to be afraid. It's almost like he just he calls Daniel over to him and it's just him and Daniel, you know. And he's like, he's like Daniel, you just have a seat right next to me. He's like, Daniel, I know this can be a tough one, but I need you to be straight with me. Don't be around the bush. Don't placate me. I want you to tell me the truth. Right? I need to know how bad it's going to be. 
That's what he says. Oh, listen to the tenderness of the response. Daniel says to him, My Lord, if only this dream were to apply to your enemies, to those that hate you. Oh, if I could do anything. If I could, if I could give anything for this dream to be for the people that are against you, I would do whatever it took. But he says, that tree you saw, that was you. And all those things that it said, all those good things you talked about, visible all, providing the fruit and the abundance and the, and the lodging for the birds and the beasts, all that was for you. All that was for you. Verse 22, it's you, O king. For you become great and grown strong. Your majesty become great and reach the sky. And your dominion is to the end of the earth. And the king saw, and in that the king saw an angelic watcher, which I would love to get into, and I've preached about this before, I've written about this, I've talked about it. I don't have time to talk about it today. But it's, it's enough to say this is a messenger from the living God. The angel came to him and said, hey, cut the tree down. Cut the tree down, put bands of art iron around it, and 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 it's going to be a problem. And and there's going to and there's going to be seven years that are going to be that's going to have these issues. But at the end of those seven years, I've got some good news for you. It's like good news, bad news situation, right? For seven years, you're going to be stripped away. The kingdom's going to be taken out of your hands. But that band is going to be tightened around there so that so that the, so the tree can grow back. Look at verse twenty-four. This is twenty-four. This is the interpretation, O King. This is the decree, right? You will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You'll be given grass to eat like cattle. You'll be drenched with dew for seven years, seven periods of time, seven years, as the, as the Aramaic phrase for that, will pass over you until you recognize the Most High rulers, uh, His ruler over all the realms of mankind and bestows you on wonders on whomever He wishes. And in that, he, has, he was commanded to leave the stump and the roots of your tree. Your kingdom will be assured to you after you recognize that it is heaven that rules, not you. Therefore, O king, my advice to you, and this is where he gives him advice. This is, this is like, here's a dream, this is the interpretation, now here's the free bit, right? This is my advice to you. My advice to you is back away from the pride, dude. Lay it down. Walk away from your sin. Give it over to God. Ask forgiveness. How many times has God done that to us? How many times has He done that to us? You know, this is, this is something that's kind of powerful. He says to him, He says, Break away now from your sins by doing righteousness and from your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor in case there may be a way of prolonging your prosperity. He's basically saying, here's your pathway. But you know, the reality is, is that he was coming, he was heading uh, on a crash course for the living God and God had a plan for him. God's goal was not to destroy Nebuchadnezzar. His goal wasn't to destroy the, the Jews. His goal was to create something far more beautiful and lasting on the other side of this. His goal was to bring glory and honor to himself. His goal was to acknowledge for this man who was the ruler of the known world at the time to be able to acknowledge him, God on heaven, as the as the single and only power in the universe. That's his goal. And so Nebuchadnezzar didn't really pay attention to Daniel, as far as we know. 
And we see this here in verse 28. It says, all this happened to Nebuchadnezzar the king. And a year later, 12 months later, he was here. It switches into third person, right? And it switches into third person probably because Daniel has been called in near the end of this after, after Nebuchadnezzar has been restored and brought back to health um, and put back on the throne. Um, it's at this point that Daniel is probably helping Nebuchadnezzar compose this because no king at this point ever wrote himself. He always had scribes and people to write for him. And this is such a personal testimony. It was only natural that he would call upon the individual um, that gave him the, for the true interpretation of his dream, uh, the one that was probably caring for him for the entire seven years, which we'll get to in a few minutes, um, and ask him for this help. So it gets into the third person um, that's being written, and obviously I do believe that Daniel is the one that's, that's recounting this. This is, a, this is a, an eyewitness testimony at this point uh, from Daniel's perspective, um, on the third person of the, of the king. The king reflected um, and said, he was on his roof, walking on his roof in the royal palace. And the king reflected, is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might and power and for the glory of my majesty. And while the word was in the king's mouth, it was almost like it's a cartoon, right? It's almost like there's a word bubble hanging above his mouth, you know, like you see in the cartoons. And as the words are still hanging up there, it's like the angel came down and said, boom, you're done. You're done, son. Knew it was going to happen. He's waiting for you. While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty. Your declared sovereignty has been removed from you, and you'll be driven away from mankind into the dwelling place of the beasts. And thus it happened immediately. The word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched. This is a powerful moment. It's the moment when the king, or the king of the, of, the, of, the, of the world at the time, just simply got smacked in the head and brought low. You know, there's a lot that we could talk about this. I know in Sunday school last week we were talking about uh, the medical condition known as zoanthropy, which is um, an actual condition. It's where a person psychologically believes that they're an animal, specifically um, a beast in the field, like a cow or an oxen. Um, and uh, that particular, they, they live like this. People, act, this is actually a recognized disease. And, and it's interesting that this is, um, you know, a lot of times people say, well, you know, that didn't really happen, right? Because it sort of indicates that he was transformed into a beast. Like one minute he's a man, the next minute he's a cow eating grass. And I don't know if that's the case or not. I think the, the wordage there is a bit obscure um, and it's not, we can't guarantee that's exactly what happened. Can't say that it didn't happen. It's obvious that God has the ability to do whatever he wants to and if he wants to turn a king into a cow, he can do it. But I don't think that's what happened. Um, I think what really happened was there was a psychological shift and, and he did, went into madness, um, into this what we call zoanthropy or whatever you want to call it and, and began to act like a beast of the field. Um, but in all of that, Nebuchadnezzar was brought down. Now, you may say, well, that didn't happen. Historically speaking, that didn't happen. There's no evidence of that. Well, I, I, would, I would ask you, if you really want to get down to it, that if you're a student of history and you want to go actually start looking for, for ways to disprove this, I would encourage you to go and just do a, just do a spot check on all the kings that, um, of that day. Or even, even 100 years after, 100 years before, 200 years before and after, however you want to do it. And just look at the public persona, what was written about the kings in the world. And, and I ask you, were there anything written bad about the kings apart from the Bible? 
I mean, reality check here is no king puts out public things that are negative about him. But in this case, he was, right? We're writing something down here. But there is strong evidence from many other historical sources, from um, scribes actually in Babylon to Herodotus that was writing, who actually visited and toured the city and was able to talk to many of the wise men that used to live there underneath um, these reigns. And, and he t there were uh, several other uh, historians, all the way up to Josephus, that recount that this actually did happen. So this is one of those things that actually, I believe actually did, and I think we've got some proof here in a moment I'm going to bring to you um, that will even bring it out even further that it actually did happen, or at least in my opinion it did. Um, and so this king was brought low, and this is the thing that I think is important to remember, just like we said a moment ago, pride is the ministry killer. Pride will take everything down. Because pride gets you to that point where what we should have or what we ought to have, Right? Well, we ought to have this boss instead of that boss. We ought to have this car instead of that car. We're good enough. We deserve enough. We should have enough. You know, it's always about what we think we should have, right? Well, we're, we're a First Baptist church. We deserve X. Well, we're, a, we're, we're the only ones that are preaching the Word of God on the, on the peninsula, which I don't think we are. I think we're one of many. But still, you know, we can, we can go on and on about all the things that we can take pride in. We have one of the largest sanctuaries in, this, in the peninsula. We do. We have one of the nicest kitchens in the peninsula. We do. But those are not the things we should be known about. We should be known because of the love that we have between each other. We ought to be one of the friendliest and, and, and most family-oriented church on the peninsula. And I'm, I'm, I just, I, I hate to say this, but we're not. We're not. We have room for improvement. And I think, I think what God's telling me, He's telling me i got to lay my pride down. And I think he's telling you, you need to lay your pride down. It's hard. And I'm telling you, what I get from this message is, if we're not willing to lay our pride down, I don't know if he's willing to continue to let us be without taking drastic steps. It's the way it was in Nebuchadnezzar. Three times he connected with the living God. Three times he stood in front of him and blinked. And walked away saying, wait a minute, I'm still the man. And finally God said, that's it, enough's enough. I'm taking it away from you. I've seen it happen to other churches. I've seen it happen to other ministries. I've seen it happen to other pastors. I've seen it happen to other church members. I think all of us are struggling with pride and we need to get rid of it. Scripture says we ought to fall all over ourselves trying to exalt other people. We should be doing our darndest to be able to focus on what God has called us to do to be able to exalt those around us, to lift other people up. How many times do we spend the majority of our day or our week or our month or even our year building other people up? I went to the convention this last week. I got to hear a lot of people talk about a lot of things. And when you, get, when you get 100 preachers in a room, you get all kinds of opinions, all kinds of egos, all kinds of thoughts and ideas. And 
And I saw more pride sitting in that room this last week than I ever really wanted to see among my peers. And I remember going back to my hotel room and back to, uh, to where I was resting and exhausted after a full day of, or in two and three of putting in you know, work, going to these conferences and, 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 and hearing and, and giving opinion and, and trying to take it all in so I can bring it back to you guys. And, and, and we'll be talking about in the weeks to come you know, some of the things that we discussed. And there's some things I think we're concerned about, but some things that I think we have a pathway forward. But you know, I tell you, what really scares me is, is what are the, the pride that God revealed to me that was in that building... I saw reflected back at me at the hotel room in the mirror when I was asking and praying that God would reveal to me how to preach this message. I think pride is something that obviously Nebuchadnezzar had, had a problem with. And pride is something that I think we have a problem with. Nebuchadnezzar for seven years, seven years, was laid low. You know, for a long time, people really wondered if this actually happened. And I want you to think about this. You know, just because it said he, was, he was, went out to the beast in the field, you have to realize that he's still a king, right? And the king, last thing the kingdom wanted was for the average citizen to know the king was sick. Because when the king's sick, then, then people rebel. Revolts happen. People want to pay taxes. There are all kinds of issues. If there's a weakness in the kingdom, then they want to exploit it. And so there was, there was definitely a vested um, interest in the, in the bureaucrats and the people that were running the kingdom behind the scenes to not let anybody know. So more than likely, he was sitting in a garden. He was sitting in, a, in the king's you know, backyard, basically. He was being cared for and tended to. And no one knew, other than just a few people, just how bad it really was. But I think that if you really look at it and we start looking at the, some of this archaeological evidence that we have, which I'll get to in a second, um, more than likely the person that cared for him through those seven years was Daniel. So here's Daniel in his 50, 50th year of life-ish. You know, he spent the entire entirety of his career, 30 plus years, 40 years, serving a kingdom that stripped him of his birthright took him away from his home, destroyed his town. Nebuchadnezzar later, after a couple rebellions and some issues that he had, he finally went in there and destroyed it all. Killed everyone. And yet Daniel is still here with him. Anytime. At this point, Daniel could have said, you know, now's the perfect time to stage that rebellion. Now's that perfect time to step away. But he doesn't. He is true to his, his calling to be Nebuchadnezzar's right-hand man and to be that consistent and constant witness for God before this king. We don't know if anyone else that, that Daniel discussed, talked to, or knew ever came to the saving knowledge of who God is, but except for probably and possibly Nebuchadnezzar. Think about that for a minute. He spent 40 years living and probably preaching God to this man and to everyone else that knew him, which you can see later on in, in, in the subsequent chapters. And, and yet, as far as we know, only one person came to know Jesus Christ. One. That's not a real good track record for a, for a pastor, but he's not a pastor. 
He's a chief executive, and he had a job. His job was to take care of Nebuchadnezzar. So in, the, in, in, in cave number four of Qumran a few years ago, when they found all those, um, those things, uh, those Dead Sea Scrolls, it came across this one particular scroll that I think is, is pretty amazing. Now, it's titled The Prayer of Nabonidus. Nabonidus was obviously the father of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, but in the Aramaic, in the, in, in the translations when it goes from Aramaic to, to, um, to Hebrew, um, it's kind of an interesting, even when it goes into Greek, there's only like one or two letters that's different between Nabonidus and, and, and Nebuchadnezzar. It's only one or two letters. And several theologians that I've read believe that the prayer of Nebun uh, Nabonidus is actually written um, by Nebuchadnezzar himself, and it should be, it should read the prayer of ne Nebuchadnezzar. And here's the reason why. I'm going to read to you the prayer that's recorded in the coup. It was recorded on the Dead Sea Scrolls that we now have that's in um, the museums. That We only have a few of the verses. We don't have it all, but here's what it says. It says, the words of the prayer said by Nabonidus, king of Babylonia, the great king when afflicted. Okay? Here it is. The great king when afflicted. With an ulcer on command of the most high God in Tayama. So here's the king of Babylon being inflicted with what we have here is translated the word ulcer um, at the command of the, of the most high God in Tayamas. I, Nabonidus, was afflicted with an evil ulcer. The word ulcer there is, we don't really know what it means. That's just the word that came, um, that was translated. And it says, for seven years, and far from men, I was driven until I prayed to the Most High God. Hmm. Sound familiar? And an exorcist pardoned my sins. He was a Jew from among the children of exile in Judah and said, recount this in a writing to glorify and exalt the name of the Most High God. And then I wrote this when I was afflicted for seven years by the Most High God with an evil ulcer during my stay in Tayama. I prayed to the gods of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone. Um, and and uh, time, it is interesting to notice that this line, praise the gods of silver, bronze and iron. Notice that there, wood and stone, returns in Daniel just a few lines in the story when you talk about the, Nebuchadnezzar, the madness of Nebuchadnezzar. Um, because, and this is what he says in the end, because I thought and considered them gods. And then the end of that prayer is missing. It's just not in that. Uh, the rest of the uh, tablet was destroyed. And so we don't get the rest of it. But it's interesting that that's, that's a, this is archaeological evidence of Nebuchadnezzar writing and with Daniel involved in it, right? And so it, this, at the end of this period, in verse 34, by the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me seven years later and I blessed the Most High God and praised and honored Him who lives forever. And here's where the doxology uh, part two begins, this statement of faith. He says, for His dominion is an everlasting dominion and His kingdom endures from generation to generation and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted for as nothing. But He does according to His will in the host of heaven among the inhabitants of the earth and no one can ward off his hand or say to him what have you done at this time my reason returned to me and my majesty and my splendor was restored to me for the glory of my kingdom and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out so that I was reestablished in my sovereignty and surpassing greatness was added to me and I, now I Nebuchadnezzar praise and exalt and honor the kingdom the king of heaven for all his works and are, are, for all his works are true and his ways are just and he is able to humble those who walk in pride what's the end of this story 
story. The end of this story is that he is humbling those who walk in pride. He offered three reasons why he was going to praise and honor God. First of all, his works are true. He really does what he says he's going to do. Second, God's ways are always just. He does not act capriciously or vindictively or excessively. He doesn't act like us. He does what is right in all circumstances. God is never doing something wrong. He's never unjust. God's power is unlimited. For he is able to humble those who walk in pride. No one in history has ever been better able or more qualified to make that statement than Nebuchadnezzar. No other king could say that. No other human being. And I'll tell you, I don't know if I would want to have that happen to me. Nebuchadnezzar had an encounter with the living God. And it shook him. In my opinion, Nebuchadnezzar's praise is sincere. The question is, was it an experience that led to salvation? I believe it was. But if you're looking for me to define salvation in another person, you're looking to the wrong person. The man said everything he needs to say. This is the end of his story. This is it. No more is said about Nebuchadnezzar after this. He's done. We know that, that about a year after he writes this, he dies, passes away. His son takes over and reigns for a couple, three years, and another one takes over, and another one takes over, and it becomes just a hot mess in the palace, intrigue, issues, lots of problems, people dying left and right, kings rising, kings falling, and eventually the entire kingdom destabilizes and is taken over by the Persians, which we see in chapter 5, which is the next chapter. I believe, although I don't want to be dogmatic about it, but the language here that Nebuchadnezzar is writing is he did in fact have a saving encounter with the one true God and he is, in my opinion, probably in heaven to this day. But that's Nebuchadnezzar's story. Now we ask ourselves, so what? How does this apply to me? How do I take this and do something with it? Here's the answer. How is pride affecting you? How is pride affecting me? How is pride affecting all of us? Our brother Phil wanted, he and I have been talking about this. We've been struggling, as you know, with our, with our worship time to get, get the worship uh, team in place and to do the things we want to do. And we've been having to record some of them and show them on the screen. And we're not able to always get our musicians here. This COVID thing has really sort of ripped apart our ideas. And, and Phil and I had had this idea. It's mostly Phil's idea. In fact, I think it's all Phil's idea. But he would love to be able to come together one of these Sunday nights coming soon where we get together and we just praise and we worship. We get as many musicians as we can and we just spend the whole night praising and worshiping and giving testimony to God. And in necessary, asking forgiveness. Asking forgiveness from God, from each other as we seek to move forward. You know, we don't know what the future has. This virus thing may rise its ugly head. We see the president's now um, infected and so is many of his top advisors. 
Who knows what's going to happen with this? We don't know if we're in for another round of closures or whatever. We know that the, that, that the enemy wants to stop the Word of God from going forward, and he will use whatever he could, can do that. But I can tell you this, that God, no matter what, will not be thwarted. His plan will not be derailed. And no matter what the enemy tries to do, God will always take his machinations and twist them around and use them for good every single time. It's been a hard time at First Baptist Kenai for a little while. What are we doing? What are we going to do? How do we move forward from here? How do we walk in His path from this day forward? Reality is we're all sinners. You, me, and everyone. I used to say when I was pastoring this one church, you know, every time you drive past my house, you roll your window down and shout out, Sinner! Because that's what I am. I'm a sinner saved by grace. I use that as a joke until one of our church members, who sometimes watches us online, um, actually did it many times. He'd drive past, and I'm like, oh man, I don't know, I probably should be careful what I say from the pulpit. I mean, it doesn't change the truth of it. I'm a sinner saved by grace. You're a sinner saved by grace. But that's the beauty of the living God. He loves us enough that he'll save us, that he'll forgive us, that he'll take our failings and our, and our misfortunes and our pride and all the things that, that make us who we are and he'll strip away the things he doesn't want. He'll send the rest through the forge to burn away the dross and he'll pound on us, he'll shape us, he'll mold us until we become useful. Useful. Maybe that useful is that he takes us home. And our usefulness is a cautionary tale. Sometimes his usefulness may be that he needs to move us out of the way so that he can accomplish his, his work. Makes you wonder sometimes, you know, if, if we're thinking, and here's the thing, is if you think you're indispensable in this church or in any ministry that God controls, you need to realize you're not. I'm not, you're not, none of us are. The reality is his message is going to go forward no matter what. Are we going to stand in the way or are we going to stand at his side? Now I know this message really is, is less evangelical, even though this is an evangelical pastor, um, than, than, than I would like. But the reality is, is that we're all sinners saved by grace. Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, needed to be brought low so that he could recognize who is truly on the throne. And it isn't him. And I'm going to tell you this, you don't want that happening to you. If you don't know Jesus Christ, your personal Savior, if you've never had that moment where you've bowed your heart and will before Holy God, and you're still in that spot where you think your desires, your needs, your wants, your pleasures is more important than Him, you are going to be headed towards a fall. And maybe He needs to bring you down so He can build you back up. I don't know. But if you're at that place now, if you're at that point in your life where you are being brought low, He has a plan for you. He will build you up, but you have to be willing. Are you willing? If you don't know Jesus Christ, your personal Savior today, all I can say is please don't let pride stand in your way. Come down front. If you're watching online, I promise you there are people that are watching. My good friend Tom is usually always watching, and, and he is always usually there to say, you know, talk to him. If you don't know Jesus Christ, your Savior, please talk to someone. Come down front if you're here. 
Don't let today end. But if you're like me, and you've been moved by the words of Nebuchadnezzar, and what it took to bring him low. And if you, like me, are fearful of an encounter with the living God because you know that you are found wanting, I encourage you to come to this altar today. Bow your head if you're watching at home. And give over your pride, your anger, your frustration, anything that's holding you back, and give it to Him. Let Him take it from you. Let Him heal you. Let Him bring you to a place where you can be truly useful. And let the, the, the fire of the furnace die down. Because the reality is, is that He has to pull you out of that fire to really pound you into the shape He wants you to be in. You want the pounding to stop. You want the fire to go away. You've got to give it over to God. Let the master craftsman shape you. So I encourage you to open up the altar. Come. In a few minutes, we're going to play some music. We're going to have it going. I'm going to ask them to push play in, in the back so we can do this. I encourage you to move as the Holy Spirit has asked you to. If those of you that are worshiping at home and the music's over, our service will be at an end. For the rest of you that are here, we're moving into our Sunday school hour. I encourage you to go where God is, is leading you today. That's all I can say. Let's go ahead and go before the Lord and pray. Father, we love you so much. Lord, we ask right now that you will guide our hearts and our understanding and our thoughts and our minds. Father, I ask that you give us the strength and courage we need to follow you today. Father, if there's anyone in here that does not know you, if there's anyone in here that's never bowed their will and heart and head before you, Father, I ask that you do whatever it takes to bring them low. Father, I don't wish any to perish, and I know you've said in your word that you don't wish any to perish, but that all might come to know you. Father, we ask that you will do whatever it takes to make that happen for those that are listening today, myself included. Father, I know that I have sinned before you. I can only ask your forgiveness. But for the rest of us, Father, I ask that you move. You said in your word that if we're faithful to ask forgiveness, you're faithful to forgive. Father, I ask that you empower us, encourage us, and motivate us as a church to be better, to serve you, and to build a kingdom that's truly worthy of you. Lord, again, if there's, no one, if there's anyone in here that doesn't know you, anyone watching online that's never accepted you, don't let the day end without getting them getting their heart right. The rest of us, Father, please move us. Lord, we love you and we thank you. We ask this now in the name of your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. If you'll stand, we're going to sing. Like I said, those of you that are watching online, when the music's over with, um, you're free. Let's praise.